Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman, and today I'm talking about environmental human rights in the United States with Nick Stump, a library faculty member at the West Virginia University College of Law and an expert in environmental and energy law and Appalachian studies. In June, U.S. President Donald Trump announced that the United States would be withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement. The agreement is a non-binding international accord that seeks to reduce carbon emissions worldwide, so a U.S. withdrawal threatened at the very least to undermine the consensus that gave the agreement its symbolic weight. Defending his decision to withdraw from the agreement, President Trump said in a speech that he was elected to represent the people of Pittsburgh, not Paris a declaration that was intended to highlight his administration's stated commitment to growing the U.S. economy and putting America first. The Pittsburgh reference was invoked to represent America's industrial core, a part of the country hit particularly hard by troubling rates of unemployment due to the loss of industrial jobs. According to President Trump, the Climate Accord stood in the way of creating American jobs in places like Pittsburgh. The President's statement pitted environmental regulations against domestic economic prosperity. It's a concerning standoff, and it resonates in many economically precarious regions of the U.S., including Appalachia, where many people have lost coal mining jobs. At its core, the Paris Agreement recognizes the role of humans in climate change and directly connects human activity to the changing conditions of the natural environment. And while President Trump might have us believe that the relationship between humans and nature boils down to a trade-off between the environment and jobs, the interactions between people and the environment are much more complex, economically, ethically, and legally. Do people have a right to a healthy environment? And if so, what is our responsibility in realizing that right? I'm here with Nick Stump, an expert in environmental human rights and a native of Appalachia, and we're going to talk about just what is going on with the environment and the economy in the U.S. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Nick. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be talking with you. All right, let's start with the basics. What are environmental human rights? Environmental human rights can best be broken up into uh, two categories. First category is substantive environmental human rights. And the second category is procedural uh, environmental human rights. So first, in terms of uh, these substantive rights, this basically involves a nation or some larger international entity basically establishing and guaranteeing the right to a clean, safe, and or healthy environment. And normally this is talked about in the context of clean uh, air and clean water, right? Having uh, water and air free from pollution, but also having clean soil uh, and food security in a general sense. So those are substantive uh, environmental human rights. And then we also have these procedural rights. And these include things like an obligation on the state to regularly assess negative environmental impacts, Uh, to ensure that the citizenry has access to pertinent environmental information, uh, to ensure that the citizenry uh, can meaningfully uh, and genuinely participate in environmental decision-making, and, of course, that the citizenry does have uh, legal remedies available for any negative environmental impacts or environmental harms. 
So this area of law is interesting because it addresses the relationship between humans and the natural world. We're used to thinking about humans in relation to society, the economy, politics, and the rights associated with those realms, so socio-political rights, for instance. But here, you're bringing the environment into a conversation about rights. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, what a lot of commentators talk about is the fact that, I mean, on the one hand, you have uh, civil and political uh, human rights, which are well established. And then you also have uh, economic, social, and cultural human rights, which are also fairly well established. But then we have this uh, newer wave of rights like environmental human rights. And I think they're important because they really do serve as a sort of foundation, or you might say that environmental human rights constitute a prerequisite for the enjoyment uh, of other human rights, like those civil, political, uh, economic, social, uh, and cultural uh, human rights. Where do we find environmental rights within existing legal frameworks? Where do they derive from? I mean, in terms of the U.S. specifically, um, there has been to date uh, very little explicit incorporation of environmental uh, human rights into any variety of, of legal regime, although sometimes you do see it with uh, individual states within the United States or at the local level. Um, but, you know, in terms of other uh, nations around the world, there actually has been considerable success in incorporating uh, environmental human rights principles explicitly into uh, different sorts of legal regimes. You know, in fact, there's over a hundred countries which have explicitly incorporated the substantive environmental human right, right, the substantive right to a healthy environment within their constitutions. Uh, and there's also of those uh, nations, 12 or so. Uh, which have incorporated um, the procedural environmental human rights um, or the range of procedural environmental human rights into their constitutions as well. And normally what you see is uh, it is countries with newer constitutions that are including these environmental human rights explicitly within uh, their constitutions and what have you. Uh, so it's not entirely surprising that uh, countries like the U.S. Um, with older constitutions haven't. So I talked in the introduction to this episode about President Trump and the changes to environmental policy that he's begun to usher in. In your opinion, has the Trump administration created concerning conditions for environmental rights and environmental issues in general in the U.S.? Uh, I think uh, that it certainly has, uh, and for a whole range uh, of reasons. Certainly during the election, it was clear that uh, for Trump, uh, a far-right socio-political agenda was really a policy centerpiece in terms of issues of uh, energy and the environment. And after uh, Trump uh, was elected, um, you know, he's he's really only doubled down. You know, a great example of that is the fact that Scott Pruitt, uh, a longtime climate denier, uh, was appointed, uh, in fact, right, as the EPA administrator. Um, also, the fact that uh, the Trump administration has recently um, put forth budget proposals where the EPA uh, would experience extreme uh, cuts, right? Also, in a very broad sense, shows um, the Trump administration's views on environmental issues. However, uh, more specifically, um, certainly the Trump administration has taken tangible uh, action in terms of environmental law and policy, which, which in my opinion is, is extremely alarming uh, in the context of environmental protection. 
There's all sorts of uh, examples. The Trump administration has signaled through an executive order um, that it intends to dismantle uh, the EPA's clean power plan, which, of course, was the prime regulatory mechanism uh, through which uh, the U.S. was to comply with the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. Now, of course, in recent weeks, uh, the U.S. has withdrawn from the, uh, the Paris Agreement uh, as well. Um, but there's many other examples. Um, the Trump administration has ended the important Obama-era uh, moratorium on coal mining on federal lands, which means that now the Bureau of Land Management can issue uh, new leases for uh, coal mining to occur on those federal lands. Um, and, you know, very important for the U.S. Appalachian region, the Trump administration almost immediately rescinded the EPA's stream protection rule. But in a nutshell, this means that now um, coal extraction corporations of the sort that are endemic now to the Appalachian region um, are able to uh, pollute with much more impunity in terms of dumping coal refuse into uh, Appalachian waterways, right, which is um, extraordinarily harmful in terms of both environmental protection uh, and um, public health in the Appalachian region. What does the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement mean practically in real terms? So very likely the U.S. withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement will create negative environmental impacts both in the U.S. and internationally. And there is probably uh, you know, a range of reasons um, for this. One is simply that um, the United States is the uh, largest historic emitter of uh, greenhouse gases. It currently has the largest economy and is the um, contemporary second highest emitter of greenhouse gases after China. And so uh, because the U.S. is withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, um, it is likely anyway that the U.S. will continue on with business as usual, at least to a certain extent, in terms of our carbon emissions. We won't, in other words, abide by our initial uh, Paris uh, pledges. And therefore, uh, these carbon emissions from the U.S. will contribute to climate change. But uh, we also have um, sort of more indirect, likely international uh, consequences of the U.S. withdrawal. I mean, in terms of like balance of power, you know, a lot of commentators are talking about uh, the fact that it's likely that China will step into more of a leadership role on climate change issues. And from an environmentalist perspective, uh, this will likely be problematic as um, China you know, doesn't have the best record in terms of advocating for transparency, among other things, in terms of uh, abiding by environmental pledges. But we're also likely to see... Um, or it's possible anyway that other countries um, might also uh, fail in their pledges to abide by the Paris Climate Agreement. In other words, there might be a weakening of international resolve uh, with the U.S. You know, stepping back from its leadership uh, position, perhaps especially with uh, developing countries like maybe uh, Brazil uh, or India um, who might struggle uh, to uh, meet their Paris pledges. And what does leaving the Paris Agreement mean for the coal industry in the U.S. in particular? Very likely, uh, the Trump administration's withdrawal from the agreement is going to do uh, very little to benefit the uh, coal industry in 
the U.S. There's, you know, it's probably best characterized as some sort of a marginal lifeline or a, a short-term uh, lifeline. Uh, and this is for uh, at least a few uh, reasons. First, the coal industry in the U.S. has been in decline, you know, for over half a decade now, due uh, primarily um, to cheap uh, natural gas, right? The coal industry has uh, faced um, steep energy market competition from the natural gas industry. Um, and simply withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement, dismantling uh, the clean power plan is not going to stop those extremely powerful market forces aligned against uh, coal. And to that, we can also add that uh, much of the coal that was easily extractable in regions like Appalachia has been uh, largely mined, mined out uh, by, uh, by now. Also, however, in terms of market forces, um, we have renewables uh, like solar and wind, which are increasingly dominating the energy marketplace and which will likely um, or which are projected to continue to do so uh, in the future. And so simply withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement also can't account for uh, the rising dominance of uh, renewable energy. And finally, what we have to remember is during the campaign, uh, and even in his uh, speech um, discussing uh, why he withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, President Trump has mostly been talking about restoring uh, not necessarily the coal industry specifically, but coal mining jobs uh, to uh, the coal miners in regions like Appalachia. And the problem is the coal industry um, has been uh, shedding jobs for decades due to automation. Right. And the uh, varieties of surface mining that are prevalent now in regions like Appalachia, like uh, mountaintop removal mining, you just don't need uh, very many people anymore. It's largely automated. So even to the extent that the um, uh, withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement might be, uh, again, uh, tossing a lifeline, as it were, to uh, the um, coal industry, it does not necessarily mean uh, and certainly it probably won't mean that coal mining jobs will also be restored. In thinking about extractive industries in the U.S., I'm wondering if violations of environmental human rights tend to disproportionately affect certain regions of the country, particularly marginalized regions with, say, high concentrations of natural resources. Yeah, I think um, to talk about why... Um, environmental rights principles involve uh, disproportionate impacts across peoples and regions. Um, I think it really helps to introduce the discourse of environmental justice. And environmental justice is uh, fundamentally concerned with a type of distributive justice uh, in that in contemporary uh, society, environmental harms tend not to be equitably uh, distributed uh, throughout uh, a community or society, but rather um, they disproportionately impact marginalized groups. All right? By marginalized groups, this normally means that environmental harms disproportionately uh, impact groups along lines of race, uh, ethnic minority status, sex and gender, socioeconomic status or low-income communities, uh, age, disability, and so on and so forth. So when we're talking about environmental human rights issues, sure, there are universalized environmental rights problems like climate change, but so too do we have to talk about the fact that um, 
there are communities and regions which are being disproportionately uh, impacted um, by a whole range of environmental harms. Uh, and, and why do these exist? You know, to me, it's no mystery. It's because uh, there are profound structural race and structural uh, class issues in the United States. And the disproportionate allocation of environmental harms is just one manifestation of these in inequities uh, that are present uh, in the country. Appalachia suffers from um, it's popularly termed the natural resource curse. Um, we have one of the largest deposits of uh, coal, uh, or we did, uh, in the world before much of it was, was mined out. And what the natural resource curse denotes is that regions uh, or countries which tend to be rich in natural resources are paradoxically, in the end, materially poor, and that normally outside interests extract those resources, that the wealth does not flow to a region like Appalachia itself, and that there are accompanying uh, harms such as um, you know profound economic harms that result when you have a mono economy like a coal mono economy in Appalachia, and of course the environmental uh, harms as well. Right, so we kind of have like unique uh, geologic forces at work uh, in Appalachia, and unfortunately we have not had state uh, political, uh, or, you know, the, the state level political will or, or national level political will to um, in any way. Um, stem much of that destruction or uh, rebuild um, the, you know, denuded uh, and scarred, at this point, Appalachian region. Is it something of a paradox that many Trump voters actually live and work in these very regions that have experienced the most extreme environmental harms? Yeah, I think um, the notion that uh, many Trump voters live in the areas most negatively impacted by uh, these negligent environmental policies, I think largely that's only a paradox on its face. Um, and that is just because regions like Appalachia um, are experiencing just extraordinary uh, economic hardship. Um, there's numerous counties in uh, the central Appalachian region uh, in West Virginia um, that have been characterized by economists as being in a Great Depression, right? That level of economic hardship. Um, and so it's not as if many Trump uh, voters who live in the Appalachian uh, region are not aware that the coal extraction industry, that uh, the natural gas industry and so on is producing uh, environmental harms. What happens is um, to these people in Appalachia, they're presented with a binary of jobs versus the environment, right? And in my opinion, in the opinion of most commentators, it's not a true binary, it's a false binary. Um, but what these voters are told is, yes, of course, the coal extraction industry is producing negative environmental impacts, but we need the coal extraction industry in Appalachia in order to uh, get you a job, in order to, to provide you with income, to try and get you uh, out of, um, right, the, these terrible uh, economic straits. So again, it's not that these uh, folks in Appalachia are unaware of the negative environmental impacts. It's that they think um, that they need to live with them uh, in order to try and secure some sort of a, a coal job. But again, there are uh, no jobs, or certainly there's uh, many fewer jobs than there used to be due to automation. And that's why um, I believe that this is a uh, false uh, binary. And, you know, it, I would be remiss if I didn't add the fact that it is the extraordinarily uh, influential coal 
uh, corporations active in Appalachia who, through a massive campaign, have created this binary of environment versus jobs in the first place, right? Um, and so voters in the Appalachian region are also having to contend uh, with that uh, binary. Really, it's like a, a campaign of misinformation that's been going on for, for quite some time. Yeah, there's this convergence of coal money and the media that has been creating this narrative for decades. Yeah, you know, I think I, I, mean, I could even add to that. Um, I think as we're all aware, um, the popular media in the United States, uh, and, and, you know, and really the international media during the election and after the election really focused on the Appalachian region um, as an exemplar of quote unquote uh, Trump country. And folks who are uh, actively involved uh, in Appalachian studies uh, tend to think that that was a pretty problematic fixation. Number one, uh, Appalachia is a pretty heterogeneous place. Uh, you know, there's plenty of um, voters uh, who, you know, were very interested in uh, progressive alternatives to Trump. But two, it's almost bizarre the way that the national media uh, focused on Appalachia um, because it's such a small population and that there were so many uh, Trump voters located in other places in the United States, including in coastal elite uh, regions uh, like New York. Um, and so we think that there was a, in short, a class or elitist uh, fixation uh, on, uh, again, Appalachia as the Trump country. It was a way for, we think, uh, the popular media to ignore the very real structural racism uh, that obviously um, exists in coastal elite regions by basically scapegoating Appalachia uh, in its entirety. And of course, this is not to say that there's not, uh, you know, um, identity politics issues and, 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 and so forth in Appalachia, because there certainly are, but it's the way Appalachia was talked about in the national media, which in the end reinforces the notion that Appalachia is a coal extraction sacrifice zone, which should be abandoned in the first place uh, to, to the industry, right? So I, th I think it's all connected. Are environmental human rights at odds with a pro-business agenda in the U.S.? Are these camps inherently pitted against one another? You know, I think at least in theory, environmental human rights principles um, can be compatible with at least uh, an ecologically sustainable approach to business. Uh, I don't think environmental human rights and um, business, uh, at least in a general sense, are uh, mutually exclusive. However, I mean, I think the problem is under our you know, current vigorous regime of neoliberalism, uh, many businesses, particularly uh, fossil fuel um, extractive uh, corporations, are profoundly uh, under-regulated, right? It's almost the raison d'etre of uh, extractive industries. Um, to produce, uh, you know, negative environmental impacts, like, again, the coal industry um, in Appalachia. So, yeah, so again, I think that environmental human rights could be compatible uh, with business, but not the sort of uh, corporations, particularly uh, the extractive corporations that we see uh, under, the, you know, the current um, global world order. The question of the corporations oppose environmental human rights principles, you know, I would say that corporations certainly uh, wouldn't oppose environmental human rights in a superficial sense. Um, right. I think at least, um, you know, 
it's in vogue for corporations to say that they're committed to corporate social responsibility and to also green uh, corporate social responsibility. But again, in practice, uh, it's an entirely uh, different matter, right? Many corporations, um, extractive corporations in particular, um, pretty much have to create environmental human rights violations in regions like Appalachia uh, in order to to operate. You know, coal is a um, extraordinarily uh, dirty. Uh, industry uh, claims to clean coal uh, notwithstanding. What then do you think is the best approach to dealing with the challenges of realizing environmental human rights? I, I genuinely believe that a local-centered grassroots approach to uh, environmental activism and environmental reform is of paramount importance. Uh, and I think it was of paramount importance even before um, you know, Trump was elected and there's been, you know, essentially a wholesale abandonment at the, at the federal policy level, you know, on progressive environmental issues. And I think a local centered grassroots uh, approach um, is important for at least two reasons. One, uh, I really do believe that this approach is the most substantively uh, effective approach. And that is because environmental harms and environmental issues, again, aren't universalized across uh, the United States, that there are um, unique uh, environmental issues and burdens in particular regions, uh, communities, and so forth, and that we therefore need to adopt particularized approaches to dealing with these problems. Uh, and this isn't to say that we should only be dealing with the problems at the local level. Uh, instead, what I mean is we need to start uh, at the local level, uh, generate uh, reform and discussion from there, and then very often work our ways up, right? So link local-centered uh, issues with broader regional, national, and eventually international uh, approaches to uh, environmental issues, to environmental uh, human rights. But I also like the grassroots approach to uh, environmental reform because I think it is uh, procedurally just which in many ways is just as important as the uh, effectiveness of, of the end result of your reform, because including the citizens on the ground who are, um, you know, particularly impacted uh, by an environmental legal scheme at issue, I think makes all sorts of uh, intuitive sense, right? These are the, the folks who are feeling uh, the environmental impacts. I also think that a grassroots approach constitutes a democratizing force. You know, at this point, there's essentially endless uh, studies out that discuss the fact that the U.S. Um, is more of an um, oligarchy uh, than, you know, than a genuine uh, democratic republic and that, you know, there's powerful corporate interests um, who tend to dictate public policy more than average citizens. Um, again, you know, these are empirical studies. And so I think the extent to which ordinary citizens on the ground uh, can re-engage through environmental grassroots activism, that allows them again to kind of reclaim a very important uh, democratic uh, space. Well, thank you, Nick, for sharing your insights on human rights and the environment based on your extensive experience in Appalachia. Yeah, and thank you so much for putting this together. This is great. To the extent that, you know, these Appalachian issues can get out there, um, I'm thrilled. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud.